For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to see friendly faces. There's a small group of us who have been sitting uh, the first part of a half-day meditation retreat. After my talk is done and the service is over, we'll finish. And it's been great to be able to do that again. I hope we'll be able to do it again at Ebenezer Lutheran Church before too long. Um, I'm Douglas Floyd. I'm the board president and the temple director at Ancient Dragons and Gate. And Tygen asked me to do this, give this talk, I guess, toward the end of April. And uh, that I had just finished two trips at that point. One was to my 50th high school reunion in Montgomery, Alabama with a stop on the way in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my uh, mother is in an assisted living home and my sister and her family are. And then uh, after returning from there, a couple of days later, I went to a, uh, Austin, Texas, to uh, a Branching Streams Sangha conference, and um, to, I got a chance to visit my friend. It, the, the trip affected me a lot. It, obviously, it was great to see my family and to see friends from high school, many of whom I had not seen for 50 years, others I had not seen for 25 years. And it was great to go to Branching Streams and to see a friend there. But at the same time, you know, seeing my mother, who's 93 years old, who's having problems with dementia, and other members of the family who were suffering from pretty significant health problems it was hard. And then arriving, getting to my high school reunion where I was surrounded by all these old people. You know, <laughs> you can, uh, being surrounded by uh, a large group of your aged peers is much more effective to throw light on your situation than just looking in a mirror. Somehow when we look in the mirror, we can don't see change necessarily as much as, as we should. Also at the, at the reunion, they displayed a, a short video with the senior class pictures of all the people they knew of who had died. And that must have gone on for about five minutes, which was pretty shocking. Um, you know, and, and up there with the whole experience of seeing all these people I'd known very well, that whole, that was my world for three years, and seeing all these people who you'd look at their faces, you'd see all of these men, all of us, you know, 30 to 50 pounds heavier than we used to be, all of us with no hair or less hair than we used to have, for example, all of us who had retired or, or about to retire. And 
you would look at the senior picture on their ID badge, and then you would look at the face and go, yeah, I know who you are. I don't see it. <laughs> so in Austin, when I went, it was great to see my friend, but uh, the sad thing about that is that he is dying. And that was hard. So I got the, the triple whammy that the Buddha did uh, when he decided to leave home, this experience of uh, feeling first, feeling profoundly uh, the realities of sickness, old age, and death. So when Taigan asked me to speak, I remembered a case from the uh, Gateless Record that I thought I would talk about today. What I want to uh, do is avoid, if I can, going on at length. A lot of what I had planned to say has sort of escaped my mind right now. So I hope I won't ramble too long, and I hope I won't be too abstract. Because if there's anything that's true, it is that our practice is not a practice of abstraction. So this case is called Tosotsu's Three Barriers. It's case 47 from the Caitlin's Barrier. And it goes like this. The priest Tosotsu set up three barriers in order to examine his students. First, you make your way through grasses and weeds with the purpose of realizing your self-nature. Right now, where is your nature? The second barrier. When you have realized your self-nature, you're free of birth and death. When you're on your deathbed, the light of your eyes falls to the ground. How will you be free? And the third, when you're free of birth and death, you know where to go. When the four elements that make up your body scatter, where do you go? So, you know, koans are not about figuring out some secret answer to life, the universe, and everything, but really about um, clarifying aspects of our life and our experience. And, and I've found this one to be very helpful. I, I, I want to, when I refer to him, I'm going to refer to Tosotsu using his Japanese name as, as Tosotsu. His uh, Chinese name was Dao uh, Shai Zonya. You don't need to know much about him. He's an 11th century monk. Not a whole lot of it is known about him other than that he died when he was 48. So he wasn't age. He hadn't had a big experience of old age, but it was a time in China of massive illness, tremendous violence and war, um, plagues and diseases. So he was certainly familiar with sickness and death. But I have I refer to him as Tosutsu because I, I first read this koan and became fascinated by it when I was in college. And I got bought a copy of a book called uh, Sin Flesh Zen Bones, which included a translation of The Gateless Bearer by Yogen Senzaki, who was a Japanese priest. That was the first widely available translation of The Gateless Barrier. And this case caught my attention. You know, it certainly had me puzzling about it for a long time. So when after finishing my trip, when Taigen asked me to give this talk, this came to mind. 
you know, it, it's important because it, it, it's a case that with the three stages of asking us to clarify how we experience our life, how we experience who we are, and how that affects our experience of death. Especially, you know, uh, and the point of, of our practice, which, as he says, is you make your way through grasses and weeds with the purpose of realizing yourself nature. So grasses and weeds are a common metaphor in Zen for... Uh, delusive thoughts and craving. Um, the three, uh, what are called the three barriers or the three hindrances or the three poisons sometime of attachment, aversion, and delusion, which occupy us and pull us away from our experience, sort of fresh experience of of our life right now and um, lock us into a narrow experience of being separate individual, individuals outside the world, separate from the world who are acted upon by things and who act upon things and who live uh, a life of frequently of dukkha, which is the suffering and sense of the unsatisfactoriness of our life that we come as a result of this experience of living through the uh, deluded thoughts and deluded um, feelings. You know, we, um, it's a, the experience, uh, the problem for us, what, you know, normally before we, we overlay our experience of, of the world with our thinking and these deluded feelings we are just alive in the world, one being among other beings, alive in this spacious, boundless reality that encompasses everything. And through those deluded thoughts and feelings, we feel that sense of separation. We start feeling that we and other things are separate and are concrete, fixed, abiding things um, and the the mechanism behind that how that happens is is the is our is grasping um, you know we run into challenges all the time in our life of we we have an experience that we dislike um, we don't have what we want or that we experience the risk that we're going to lose what we like, what we have and we like, or that some bad thing is going to happen to us. And when that happens, we focus on um, the situation or this thing that, that we've identified. And um, we get caught up in, in the object of our feelings, the object of our like or dislike, and the object of our thinking about it. And it intensifies the sensation. We, we get caught up in it. We give ourselves over to it. And uh, what might be 
oh, gee, that's too bad that that's going to uh, happen becomes real alarm or anxiety that something's going to happen. The sense that, oh, I'm here and that's out there, I'm here in the world becomes here I am. When we're thinking about an object of our desire, um, we certainly, we're aware of that object of desire, and when we're aware of that object of desire, we're aware of ourselves as the subject with the desire, and pretty much our experience of the rest of the world drops off. An example is, you know, we're driving, almost all of my examples in Dharma Talks come from driving a car, running, or cooking. So this example is that you're driving down the street, and up just in front of you and to the right is another car. You're driving... Uh, you're aware of what's going on, you're looking around, you see the car there, no big deal. Um, uh, And suddenly the car pulls right in front of you and cuts you off so that you almost slam into the other car's rear bumper. At that moment, when that fear and anger, you you absolutely zero in on that other car, the other driver, and your heart is pounding in you have a strong experience of yourself and what could have happened to yourself. And frequently you would share your thoughts verbally or other ways. But that's the experience of how our ordinary open experience of the world can be shaped and narrowed into this experience of this car that's cut me off and my car and me here. The result of that is that we we experience these other things in the world and ourselves as, I don't know, let's call it fixed, separate entities. We find ourselves, you know, we have an identity that we feel like uh, we have uh, for our entire lives. And we f- have this sense of ourselves as separated from the world. We think about the world, we feel about the world, but it's out there. Um, that sense of being this fixed, enduring self came home to me a couple of years ago when I was visiting with my mother, who was 91 at the time, and she said something pretty close to, I just don't understand it. I mean, look at me, and I still feel like the girl I was when I was in high school. After all this time, all these changes, she still felt like she was the same Jackie Floyd that she'd been all along. This is fixed identity. Um, sort of the classical, early classical Buddhism example of that is, is from a, a text called the Questions of King Belinda. When a king, uh, an Indian king, Belinda, asks questions of a monk named Nagasena about the Dharma. And one of the analyses is, well, what is the self? How does it how does it work? And Nagasena starts talking about, well, we're like chariots, which seems a little odd, but I think, you know, his point is really, let's think about it as we're we're bicycles. You you decide you want to build a custom bicycle and you order the parts and UPS brings a big box and they're there. All these loose components of a bicycle, is that a bicycle? No, that's not a bicycle. So you you get the frame, you attach the wheels, um you install the brakes, you fix the derailleurs, handlebars, seat, and all that. That's a bicycle. But over time, then, you have to exchange out the tires. You may want a more comfortable seat. Each time you put on a more comfortable seat, is that your bicycle? Sure, that's my bicycle. Um, 
New brakes? Sure, that's my bicycle. New derailleur, maybe? Sure, that's my bicycle. At some point, you want to clean and lubricate the whole thing, so you take it apart. It's a, it's a pile of components on the floor. A friend comes down to your basement to look at it and says, what's that? Do you say, that's my bicycle? You might, but you say, well, okay, show me the bicycle in that case. Which all of this just goes to show that, that, that our language, our concepts about what things are, are conventional, useful indicators, but they don't really correspond to something that's actually there. The big experience, the most common experience that we read about, and, and you know, we, we see that analysis when we chant the Heart Sutra, you know, where uh, we chant about uh, form and emptiness and how uh, we talk about the five skandhas, you know, form, sensation or feelings, perceptions, uh, conceptual formations and consciousness on the one hand, and then we start talking about eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, all of those different ways of of breaking our experience of ourselves into the pieces and saying, okay, where is where is Douglas in there? Um, but the other experience that the Heart Sutra is getting at, and, and that most of the great Mahayana sutras we're talking about is this sense of a separate self, a sense that's outside of reality. The world's out there and I'm watching the world, I'm acting on the world, the world might do something bad to me. And that's what I was talking about before, of of, um, seeing something uh, out there, it becomes an object of attention, especially it becomes an object of desire or something you don't want, uh, you don't like, and so... Uh, you focus on that, and it becomes concrete, it becomes reified, it becomes a thing, not just an object of perception, it becomes a thing that you're thinking about, and you become this thing too. It's not, it's a perception, it doesn't hold up to any sort of analysis. You know, Douglas, who's Douglas? Well, Douglas is, yeah, this body here, this person who's talking, well, Douglas is, uh, you know what, Douglas has thoughts. Douglas has feelings. He's not the thoughts or feelings. He's something back there, this ghost back there who has these thoughts and feelings. The the significance for that in our life is that this all comes from from, uh, the experience of this experience of the, the three poisons and the grasping is the basis for for dukkha, suffering, or the sense of that the, that the world is not satisfactory. It doesn't fit the way we think the world is is or the way it ought to be. Our experience that you know life you know my life isn't supposed to be like this. Um, when we feel something that we that's unpleasant, or experience something that's unpleasant. Um, we have a sort of psychological experience of pushing it away, resisting it. And that, that tension, that stress of pushing away is, is the experience of dukkha, which is on top of the unpleasant experience, unpleasantness of the fund- basic experience. Dukkha is an additional layer. So what does this mean for, for what our practice is? I mean, how do we deal with that? And we deal that with that in our practice by sitting down 
and letting go of our thoughts and our desires, our feelings, judgments, emotions, let them come and go. And without the energy that we pour into them with grasping, we keep opening opening our mind and not getting caught up in the these mental and emotional aspects of our experience. We keep opening up. So we open to the world and our thoughts and desires and feelings are just part of the world. They're not, we're not inhabiting those as something that's separate from the world. And that's what gives uh, rise to our experience over and over again. Just sitting in Zazen, here we are. I'm, we open up, wake up, Moment to moment, here I am, right here, in the world, part of this. That's our self-nature. That's who we, when we step out of this idea that we're this fixed, concrete, separate thing, that's our nature. That's who we are. Um, And when we're off the cushion, we have the same experience. Um... If zazen is the experience of waking up and saying, okay, I'm here, I'm going to stay with this. I'm I'm just going to stay with this experience of being here, part of this, in the world. The same thing happens when we're off the cushion. You know, you'll be... uh, We get preoccupied all the time. Um, But we come back and realize we're here and we come back to our activity without getting... uh, Just staying open. Uh, just chopping the vegetables, just driving the car, just uh, just working on our computer without uh, getting lost uh, in intense focusing on uh, our activity and the object of our thoughts and our, our activities. So that's our experience of of our true nature, this this um, experience of reality, this experience of the world that's there, uh, right here, this. In the next moment, it's this again. In the next moment, it's this again. It's changing all the time, but it's always this reality right here. And it's from the ex- this experience, and it's from this this perspective of this is the world. There is no separate Douglas. Douglas is just part of the world um, that we get to the second and the third barriers that Tosotsu raises. You know, just to remind you, the second test is when you've realized your self-nature, you're free of birth and death. When you're on your deathbed and the light of your eyes falls, when your vision is dimming, how are you free? How will you be free? And the answer to that is there's nothing you need to do to be free in a way. You are who you are. You are part of the world, which is changing all the time. This, this reality is constantly changing, moment to moment, instant to instant, evolving, becoming something else so that the old reality is gone. There's a new, fresh reality that comes each time. So the question is a death. I mean, you could say that reality or the world is nothing but birth and death all the time. 
we don't talk that way. We talk about the change to our life, that significant change to our life, not as just change. We call it birth and death or life and death. When we, um, when we sit and when we do our practice of coming back and becoming this, recognizing this and ourselves as this, moment by moment, um, we let go of the grasping. I mean, the, a great part of what we're doing is escaping dukkha. When we open up and let go of the grasping, dukkha falls away. That doesn't mean that we don't have unpleasant experiences or pain. It doesn't mean we don't have unpleasant emotions. But dukkha falls away. And along with that, that sense of ourselves as independent fixed selves uh, also falls away. Not that we're not perfectly happy to say, Douglas, are you there? Yes, I'm here. But we don't have that sense of I'm out here, this world is a threat or something that I have to have, where the experience of, of, uh, of this separate is, uh, there's compulsion behind the good feeling or the bad feeling or the desire for a good feeling or the fear of bad feeling, where you're reaching out and grasping or you're pushing and pushing and pushing, and I'm back here pushing and pushing and pushing or grasping and grasping, that tends to fall away. And in a way, it's, you know, um, you're free because um, you've let go. Um, being free of birth and death, you might say, is being free of the fear of birth and death. Um, you've let it go. So there could be an unpleasant feeling, but you're not uh, absorbed in the fear of birth, of death, um, controlled by the death, having to respond. And I think I, I unfortunately have to give a series of not entirely structured but disconnected thoughts. That ability to let go of the of death and our fear of death, our anguish about death, um, illustrates the fact that death is always something that's in the future. And death is but death is always a problem of right now in this moment. And the fear is always right now in this moment. So our experience of liberating ourselves from death, freeing ourselves from life and death or birth and death is the experience we have with every other, uh, every other experience we have of sitting on the cushion, letting go of the thoughts, letting, letting fear of death come, let it go away. Thoughts of death come, let them go away. So that they lose the force, the power to control us that they, that they had before. But doing that also just... Uh, when we see the world as this, we just recognize something that's there all along, whether or not we recognize it. And that is just this world, which is this formless, boundless, spacious whole that includes everything, including me, my body, my emotions, my thoughts, my delusions, my desires, all of that's there. It's coming and going and coming and going. 
So we're not going to experience, we're not going to be free from birth and death in the sense of um, our body's not going to break down. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. That's a fundamental reality that everything falls apart. Our body and our minds are going to fall apart too. What we call me is going to die. But that's not something that hasn't been going on all along. Um, and um, I don't know, there, there is a, there's a story about that that I don't want to cite too many things, but there's a great story about uh, Dawu, the great master Dawu, who went, with, went to a funeral for one of the monastery supporters uh, with uh, Jianyuan. And when they got to the house where they were going to perform, do the chanting service, the memorial service and the dedication of merits for their dead supporter, uh, um, Wen went up to the coffin and knocked on it and turned to Dawu and said, is this life or is this death? And Dawu said, I won't say life, I won't say death. And and Jian Yuan says, well, come on, tell me. And Dawu just says, I won't say. I won't say. And the reason he does that is because there's no question that this supporter's body has, has stopped. His mind has stopped. It's not there anymore. But the life in him, the life, his, particip his participation um, in this greater life of of reality in this greater life of the world is continued, and he's continuing with um, the constant change, the constant death and rebirth as something different, over and over again. And Dawu doesn't want to say life or death because both of those would be incorrect. Um, and I'll say finally that once again our practice can't prevent us from dying, and it can't prevent us from suffering as we die. Um, you know, the great stories about that, uh, <laughs> as examples are about, that have had a lot of influence for people are um, uh, Longton Songshin, the great master who was on his deathbed, and he felt so much pain that it was just going, ah, oh, it hurts. It hurts. And his disciples uh, were alarmed. I mean, he was a great Zen master. He's supposed to have transcended all that. He's not supposed to give in to suffering like that. He's supposed to sit upright uh, in lotus position, write a death poem, and then die in lotus position all very calmly. But that's not uh, what Longton was doing. And, so, but, uh, so the disciple said, Master, Master, what is this all about? And Longton said, you know, my agonized cries are just as good as, as my uh, singing praise of the Dharma. Um, and similarly, then, there's a story about Yento Chenwo, who was head of a monastery that was being robbed by bandits. And when they found, 
when the bandits found there wasn't really anything of value there, one of them pulled out his sword and stabbed uh, Yento, who screamed. And his screams were so loud that you could hear them for 10 miles. But no one would say Yento wasn't a great Zen master, although that story apparently was really a big problem for Hakuin, the great Rinzai master, 18th century Zen master Hakuin, for a long time, trying to figure that out. Um, but I think it, the answer is, you know, um, we have to live with the experiences that arise. They can be unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant mental experiences, but we avoid the resistance, the clinging, the pushback, uh, and the grasping that is part of our delusion and just die. That's what we can do. And in dying, we participate in the great death and great birth, great death and great life of the universe as a whole. Which leads us to the third question of when you die and the four elements that make up your body have dispersed, you, where do you go? And I think that all we can say about that is that any time all there is is just this. There's just reality. There is just this world. Moment after moment, it's this. There's this. There's this. When you are alive, there's this, there's this, there's this. When you're lying dead as a corpse, it's this, it's this, it's this. When the four elements that make up your body decompose and scatter, it's still this. It's still this. This The great... Uh, shining reality of this this great mystery, the boundless, formless presence that we are part of, no matter what happens to us, and even after we have dissolved into nothing. So, I'm going to leave my thoughts there, and uh, open the floor for challenges. Please just uh, raise your hands and either I'll see you or David will. And we can talk. Thank you. Oh, come on. I won't kill you. So... I think um, the koan doesn't make sense outside of practice. In that experience of letting go of deluded thoughts, deluded feelings, to wake up to this right here. Otherwise, it just sounds like a message of, well, life goes on, which is not very satisfactory. But it, it has a different flavor when we practice.
Douglas, thank you for that. Um, I, I think maybe maybe people are taking a moment to, to <laughs> you're going to get some some comments and questions. I just want to say that felt like um, what I imagine a trip to a, a charnel field might might be. And um, I remember that moment in one of the stories in Florence Catlow's uh, or in, in the, the hidden the, the hidden lamp where. Where a sister says to another, let's go to the charnel field, and the other says, why would we do that? And she says, well, because something good might happen if we go there. So thank you for that. Sure. Thank you. Hogetsu-san. So, Douglas, how do you tell the difference between letting go and aversion I think uh, um, letting go would mean if if aversion arises and you recognize it when you recognize it you've already let it go because you're not absorbed in it you're not lost lost in the emotion um, not wrapped up in the resistance to whatever experience there is, um, I think I think that's the difference. the the uh, the the you know it's very much the letting go is the experience that that Dogen talks about in his description of zazen and fukan zazengi, right? Uh, taking the backward step and turning and uh, turning on the light that shines within. Um, it's just letting go is just that experience of having stepped back, no longer being caught in the experience and not interfering with it. I'm never quite sure if I'm really not caught when I'm stepping back. <laughs> I think when you, when you recognize it, you're not caught in the same way. It's, it's certainly possible that you go right back and over and over and over again, especially with anything that's a really important problem, personal problem. It's going to keep coming back over and over, and we keep, but we keep uh, waking up from it. Um, I think a problem is for us when we keep, when we start trying to wake up, when we try to start trying to use some technique to wake up or to become aware or to experience something differently. Well, that's also um, grasping. Um, and I think it takes practice just to learn to be there and not interfere with whatever comes up and to allow yourself to wake up over and over and over again. Letting go. Letting go might not be the best word around, but I, I haven't come up with a, a good alternative. Not interfering, maybe. Thank you. Ruben. Douglas, thank you for your talk. It's always good to see you. Um, two things came up for me. Um, the first was um, a line 
the last line of the version of St. Francis's Prayer um, that I work with. Uh, and it is by dying that we wake into this eternal life. Thank And um, on Thursday, I went to, uh, I took a personal sabbatical to Great America. <laughs> and it was wonderful. The park was deserted because it was so hot. And um, I'd get on the, I'd get on, you know, get on a, a roller coaster. And on the way up, click, 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 you know, drop the center, release into. And it was beautiful. It was just this flow state of sensation and color and wind. And there wasn't any fear. I remember after after a couple, I was like, "This is weird. They don't seem as fun as they used to be." And, um, and then yesterday, the whole family went, and uh, my eldest daughter was terrified, <laughs> and she was holding my hand so tightly, and I was experiencing her fear. And you know, it was fun again. <laughs> and it was like, "Oh, I was missing something. <laughs> I was missing something." And uh, that was really illustrative of like, of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was pointing at, but definitely feels a little zensicky um, to just. I don't know. What do you have to say about that? I think you have to uh, go with whatever experience arises, and be alive to whichever experience you're you're having, without trying to manipulate it. Um, it's, you know, our experience changes according to causes and conditions that are present in any moment. And when a little girl is squeezing your hand very hard, that that's a different experience of just being relaxed and riding in the mm-hmm. the roller coaster car on your own. Very alive. <laughs> Thank you, Douglas. Oh, Paula, sorry, I didn't see you. Um, Ruben and Douglas, so both of your comments kind of converge for me because I love I love when we talk about our deaths because many of us come to practice in the hope that it will help us prepare in some way for that big event, the existence, non-existence, and all that kind of stuff. Um but Ruben, what you said about the roller coaster and not feeling fear, and then Douglas, how you responded about just being with whatever you're experiencing, my mind went back to you bringing up the, the great Zen masters who, while they were dying, were either saying how much it hurt or they were calling out or whatever. Because I do think in our, in our mind's eye, we can have this idea of we want to face our death and we want to be calm. We want to be calm. We kind of just want to be with it. But it, but your comments both just reinforce that the idea is to just be with the death. Like, just be with it. So really, our practice hopefully helps us to, in that moment, be with it. So if there is pain, we could express the pain and be with the pain and not be apologetic for experiencing the pain. Because then we're really completely experiencing our death. And if there is none, 
it's okay for us to be with that as well. Um, but yeah, uh, that's the big practice point, right? The practice engagement would be death in that moment. And then on the other hand, when we go back then saying, can we live in each moment when each moment dies and each moment is born, that almost gets very easy if we have the contrast with our death, right? But it's hard to talk about it. It's hard to, to wrap words around it and stuff because it's, it's, it's hard, even with all our practice and, and the teachings and all that, it's hard, the sentence that life and death are the same is extremely difficult for us to wrap our mind around because it doesn't feel that way. You know, but I, so that's all that came up for me, but I just want to thank you for a very challenging talk. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I agree with you. There are very few of us who will have a death that's free from pain or from fear. Um, and I hope we can prevent ourselves from, um, trying to figure out the right way to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that we shouldn't be feeling the fear, we shouldn't be expressing the pain. If that's what's coming, um, that's what's coming. Jerry. I was thinking about what you all said, and I think in some way, it's not in until I start thinking about death that I actually figure out how to live. It's kind of like when I screwed up my shoulder really bad and I couldn't move my arm for six months. I didn't know what an arm was until it was gone. And it's, it's unless, until I started to contemplate, well, what's going to happen when you're going to die? It made me think, well, what's happening now that you're alive? I, I, I don't know. I guess... The more I think about that, the more I appreciate being alive. And the, and the more it's like, oh, well, let's have some fun while we're here. You know, let's like, let's like enjoy it all. Let me enjoy the, you know, the laughter. And let me, let me, if I'm going to cry, let me cry really hard because when I'm dead, I'm not going to be crying. You know, maybe I will be crying. I, I don't know what's going to happen when I die. But it, it just, it, it just makes me, yeah, much more happy to be alive. 